0: This is the bill kelly show
1: podcast the uh, federal government will introduce its legislation for the legalization of marijuana Now, this is something that they talked about during the federal election of course and uh, there were a couple of attempts to try to get something going here and then it just seemed to kind of fall into the back burner but now there seems to be uh, a rush to get this thing done asap they want to get it done now at least get this started and start the debate on this now uh, much to the surprise of some people advocates i think it's a wonderful idea so so what's going to be in this legislation? What's it going to be involved? How intricate is this? What are the pitfalls? What are the concerns? An awful lot to talk about here. To uh, kick off the conversation, we're pleased to welcome Adam Greenblatt, uh, co-founder at Santa Cannabis, Quebec's only medical cannabis clinic. He's also head of the Quebec Engagement for Tweed and uh, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Adam, good morning. How are you today?
2: Morning. Great. Thanks for having me back.
1: Well, it's good to have you with us again. Uh, it looks as if uh, the government's finally going to make a move on this. What are you anticipating you're going to hear this morning?
2: Uh, So we're anticipating a few things. Uh, First of all, the question of, of distribution will be probably left to provinces. So this is just the first step in the legislative process. And uh, we expect um, provinces to, uh, to start working on their own uh, legislation around distribution and so forth. Uh, there are some uh, public health and safety issues that are probably going to come up. There's been a lot of talk about uh, cannabis impaired driving and so forth. So we are expecting specific legislation um, around, around that and uh, and we're also hoping for a, uh, a continuation of our well-established uh, mail order system that we currently use in the medical cannabis program uh, to be uh, to be uh, basically carried over into the recreational market. Uh, certainly, while the uh, the provinces sort out their affairs.
1: Are you surprised that they're moving on this now? Because when we had a conversation a little while ago. The the messages we were getting from Ottawa at that time was you know this is very complex uh, you you know you just talked about uh, you know some of the law and security issues and we have to you know talk to the justice department about that and 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 Health Canada and and on and on and and now all of a sudden it seems as if well you know, I guess they don't have all the answers to this stuff but they feel secure enough that they can move forward on this.
2: Yeah, I mean, they, the the government's gone through a very comprehensive consultation uh, process. So the 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 task for there was a task force assembled uh, last year that went around the country consulting with uh, all sorts of different, uh, all the provinces, all kinds of different stakeholders, and they put a very um, comprehensive set of recommendations forward t- uh, to the government. So, uh, I mean, the the process has been pretty pretty good so far i think the government has learned a lot in the process but I, I i certainly don't think that this i don't think that this feels rushed at all i think that this is uh exactly the we're we're on we're, we're very much on the timeline that the government has set out so i don't think they're rushing this forward i think they're taking this they're going at the right pace um you know as an advocate i can't you know we you know we can't legalize this stuff uh any faster you know but uh but I think we're
1: on the right track. And I know there are going to be critics that are going to say, well, come on, we don't have all the answers to this or to that, but what I'm getting the sense from what we've heard from Ottawa anyway so far is that uh, a lot of the stuff is going to be delegated to the provinces anyway. In other words, the, the federal government is going to set standards, but if the provinces want to vary some of those vis-a-vis uh, the age in which you can buy it, distribution, etc., knock yourself out. And Al- Ontario's might be different than Alberta's, than Quebec's, et cetera.
2: Yeah, so there, there we do expect like somewhat of a patchwork between the provinces, but what everyone is clear on and what is for certain, and what we do not need any more research on to confirm, is that cannabis prohibition has been an abject failure. It has failed to uh, curb supply, it's failed to curb demand, it's failed to uh, curb um, misuse by young people. Uh, and so, you know, we're moving forward, we're moving into a more compassionate um, cannabis policy that responds Respect the rights of consumers. That sets age limits uh, for purchase and sale, uh, and that will uh, impose quality control uh, standards on the on the industry. Something which we have not had uh, under prohibition. So, uh, by moving forward with legalization, we will be able to significantly um, reduce or eliminate many of the social harms caused by the failed policy of prohibition. And uh, and I think that's really what uh, what advocates like myself are going to be celebrating today and going forward.
1: The numbers we've seen on this uh, are, are interesting, and I'd like to get your comment on this. Uh, personal possession uh, limit will be about thirty grams. Uh, as par- far as plants in the house, they say uh, you can grow up to four. What are your thoughts on those restrictions? Uh,
2: so it, it, I'm you know we'll see at noon today when they yeah. table the legislation what those what those numbers actually are. Um, I. You know, my personal feeling is that these are very conservative starting points. You know, limiting possession to 30 grams, um, I think it's well-meaning on the part of the government. Uh, I think the, the motivation there is to um, reduce the capacity for people to resell and, uh, and, and reduce that potential for diversion. But on the flip side, you know, it, there is an arbitrary nature to that. You know, it's kind of like saying you can walk around with a six-pack but not a two-four. Uh, so there's, there's, there is a bit of an arbitrary nature there, but it's not, uh, certainly not a hill we'll die on. Um, you know, the four plants limit, it's important that, you know, again, it remains to be seen what the number will be. But, um, you know, I think that's, a, a, again, a conservative starting point that may be tweaked as we go forward. But it's very important that Canada, all, you know, adults in Canada have the right to grow a few cannabis plants certainly um certainly in terms of the you know the government's objective to undercut organized crime here you know there's there's really no cheaper way of supplying yourself with with cannabis than by growing a few plants at home you know so it's it's important that Canadians are allowed to do that especially keeping in mind that Canadians can grow and they, can legally grow an exorbitant amount of tobacco for themselves and it's really not regulated at all so you know it's kind of only fair to let
1: to let Canadians do that Adam what about how it's consumed uh, which is something that the legislation I would think is going to have to address i mean say some people will conjure up this idea of you know smoking pot and and that's how it but there it comes in various products as we as we've talked about previously uh, is is there a concern about about again safety measures because I mean I know in some jurisdictions for instance it it it's comes in candy form for instance you can eat just you know have a chocolate bar but it's it's got it's spliced with pot so Uh, and and there was some concern about well what size are you allowed to sell these sorts of things are are you feel comfortable that these are going to be addressed properly
2: yeah i i i'm i'm very hopeful i mean the task force uh again the recommendations were quite comprehensive so around edible products uh you know we're hoping that um you know there will be very clear packaging guidelines uh you know it's it, prohibiting these products doesn't make any sense. The, the real solution is to package them properly such that they're not enticing the young people, you know, uh, and, that, um, and that there are, like, you know, uh, dose limits on on an edible product. For example, Colorado sets a, sets a dose limit of 10 milligrams of THC per, um, per serving, uh, and it's all got to be lab tested and so forth. And I believe that it has to be sold in, in childproof packaging as well. So, uh, and in terms of smoking, you know, I think as we're seeing in, in the tobacco industry, there's a big move towards e-cigarettes and uh, and sort of safer uh, ways of, of inhaling uh, tobacco. Uh, you have the same sort of movement in the cannabis world, where people are are moving away from smoking and moving towards vaporizers uh, and these uh, these less hazardous means of inhaling the substance so generally there's a move towards harm reduction measures when it comes to consumption and hopefully the regulations and the and the legislation will reflect that
1: what about for those who are smoking uh, same restrictions as tobacco vis-a-vis where you can do it
2: yeah I, I i would expect something similar to that it's important you know you mentioned you, we mentioned tobacco here the biggest risk for marijuana smokers is actually mixing tobacco in with the marijuana um i think that doesn't get talked about enough but in terms of where you can uh smoke or consume cannabis i'm not sure if that'll be the if that's the purview of the federal government i think it may be a mix between the federal and provincial governments to set where people can and can't smoke uh, or consume um and it's and you know it goes beyond just where you can sell it you know Cannabis consumers need places to congregate and consume together, as, as we do with alcohol and bars. So, too, do we need lounges and coffee shops where where people can come and congregate and use cannabis together? So, so that remains to be, that'll probably be provincial jurisdiction.
1: Let's talk about the elephant in the room here. You know that as soon as this gets passed, and this is a majority government, so eventually it will. It's going to go through process, but it will be passed. They're going to tax it. Uh, and yep. there's going to be some kind of a tax on this. And, and therein lies the problem. Uh, how much is the tax going to be? I, I mean, if one of the stated goals, as you talked about a few minutes ago, is to move users away from the black market and into the more legitimate market, if the tax is too high, you know that's not going to work. People are just going to say, to heck with that. I'm going back to my supplier. How, how do you find that balance?
2: yeah you're you're absolutely right i could i I can foresee one day doing a show with you about the uh the high grass prices
1: oh yeah yeah you know what's <laughs> going to happen. we're going to talk about high gasoline prices in a few minutes. It's going to be the high pot pack you know in a, in a few months too or in a year or so
2: yeah yeah so i I think the, the government's been pretty clear that like they're not looking at they're really taking they're really looking at this through a public health lens they're not you know they're not banking on a on a tax windfall and I think think they are cognizant of the fact that the taxation rate needs to be, you know, in that Goldilocks zone of just right so that we can, you know, collect the tax on it, but not uh, encourage people to continue supplying themselves on the illicit market. Uh, so, you know, it remains to be seen what that tax rate will be and how the excise uh, system will work. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we're we're hoping for something fair and that encourages the transition over to a to illicit marketplace.
1: Yeah, I mean, there is a track record here. I know when Colorado legalized this, I, I believe between the federal and the state taxes on the product, about half of the users simply stayed in the black market. I guess they said, "You yep. just you just priced us out of this." You know, thanks for this, but we're not going to pay that.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a, it's an issue, and I know that the government is aware of it. And on the tax front, you know, it's important to keep in mind that. Cannabis is a medicine for a lot of people and can and medical users of cannabis are already unfairly taxed. And so what we're hoping uh, today is that the that there is a clear delineation uh, for, you know, uh, medical and non-medical users and for medical users, they should not be paying sales tax. On uh, on a product that their physicians have prescribed for them, uh, even and even better to that would be uh, to be able to get them some cost coverage via insurance programs and so forth. So we're hoping that uh, recreational legalization uh, enables that shift for uh, for the medical population.
1: That's a valid point because I know that uh, some people are under the impression that this is strictly recreational stuff, but it's also uh, to tie up some loose ends about medical marijuana users.
2: Yeah, I mean the 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 it's it's it, we we're, we're really hoping for a fair taxing for fair tax overall and fair tax on cannabis includes no tax for medical users uh, and hopefully also you know the with the legalization of recreational marijuana uh, we're hoping that like a lot of the lingering stigma that medical users face will uh, will be a thing of the past uh, once it becomes sort of normalized and fully reintegrated into our culture in our society.
1: Well th- there's a realization here that maybe a lot of folks may not be aware of and that of course is the increased use of, of marijuana, whether it's smoking or a pill for any number of different trans- uh, of using this for chronic pain relief and uh, it's a whole lot better you know it, as, as I've learned from pain specialists Uh, than simply popping pills all the time because of the impact that it's going to have on your body. I mean, everything has an impact that you ingest into your body. We get that. But it does supply a certain level of pain relief for those that are dealing with a number of different autoimmune diseases and other things.
2: Absolutely. You know, medical cannabis is playing a really integral role in the in the in reducing the harms associated with the opioid epidemic and the op- and the overprescription of uh, of opioid pain medications cannabinoids which are the active molecules in cannabis are non-toxic you cannot overdose from these uh on these molecules you cannot overdose on cannabis they don't cause uh, the intense withdrawal syndromes that opioids do uh you know in, on all in all metrics they are safer than, uh, than opioids and many other conventional uh, medications and uh, and again, like reducing the stigma and reducing the barriers to access is going to be overall good for, for public health.
1: What about that education component, Adam? Uh, you, you and I have talked about this in the past and th- there's an awful lot that people don't know and maybe a lot of misconceptions about what's, what marijuana is, what it's and, and the impact that it can have both positive and negative. I get that. But a lot of people dismissed even having a discussion about that because they said it's illegal anyway, so who cares? It's, it's you know it's a moot point uh now that it's moving into the into the legal realm uh do you you feel the governments both provincial and federal are going to look at this and say maybe maybe there should be an educational component about this too
2: oh yeah you're going to see a lot of different um education campaigns that run parallel to the this legislative effort uh, Tweed, for example, the company I represent, uh, has partnered with Mothers Against Drunk Driving, for example, on, uh, on an ad campaign aimed at preventing impaired driving from cannabis. Um, and you'll also see, as we saw in Colorado and other jurisdictions, just, I think, a general education campaign for the public on what you can and can't do under these new laws. So um, that's, gonna, that's a very important piece. Uh, you know, we want to be discouraging youth from using cannabis. Uh, we want to delay the age of initiation for cannabis use as long as we possibly can, because there are uh, legitimate concerns about about misuse of cannabis by youth. Um, and so, it's it's going to be very important. That's going to be very important uh, to this uh, to the success of this process.
1: That's an interesting point because the uh, information we've received. Uh, from our friends at Global News up in Ottawa, is that uh, the federal government legislation, the proposed legislation, is going to deal with age. And uh, the the, the number we're hearing is a minimum age of 18 to buy marijuana and obviously to use it. Uh, But they say there's some jurisdictional uh, latitude here with the provinces, but they can't make it lower than that. They can raise it if they want, make it 20 or 21, but they can't go lower than 18
2: yeah yeah that's right. So it's important to so the federal government's going to set a minimum at minimum age, and if the provinces want to set a slightly higher one, you know, we're talking we're really really we're talking between eighteen and twenty one here. Yeah, yeah um so if if the provinces want to set it differently, they I believe it will be uh, they will be able to do so. But it's important just to keep in mind that age limits are not Recommended ages of initiation. I don't think you'll hear anybody suggest that 19 is the age one should start smoking tobacco. It's really just an age that, in you know, in legal terms, that we distinguish an individual as an adult and as somebody who is capable of making their own decisions. So uh, it's really not—it's uh, not an age that we're suggesting people start using the substance. It's just—it's the age when you are able to vote. Go kill people in the military and buy cigarettes and alcohol and soon cannabis.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: When we get into uh, the early days of spring like this, the speculation among all Canadians is, first of all, who's going to win the Stanley Cup? Is there a Canadian team going to be in the final? But More importantly this year, it's, well, when's the price of gas going to go back down again? Now We know that there's always a bit of a spike in the beginning of springtime, but usually it kind of drops down a little bit. Apparently not. Uh, That's what the experts are telling us. Uh, The price that you see right now, as outrageous as it is, may be the lowest we're going to see it all summer. That's rather frightening. Joining us to talk about this is Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, thanks so much for the time. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing fine, Bill.
1: Oh, you must have a full tank of gas then.
0: <laughs> I actually filled up the other day at uh, it was, uh, five days ago, it was 90 something, 98 cents a liter in Ottawa, and it's now up to almost, well, depending on which gas station, it's about a DAR 20, some are at a DAR 15, some are. There's a lot of variability right now. It's bouncing around, uh, and it's certainly not a uniform, monolithic price. There is a lot of variation going on right now.
1: Do you have this phenomenon going on in Ottawa, too, where they actually jack the price up overnight?
0: Yeah, yeah, they do. Um, uh, let me just say two things uh, on this very big picture. First off, by the way, I do not consult to anyone or anything anywhere in anything to do with energy, uh, not gas, not oil, not okay, and secondly, I don't have any uh, stock uh, investments there. Um, I've certainly spoken about this, and I've certainly read the publications that have been put up by Natural Resources Canada. Uh, there's a, an excellent publication there called Refinery Economics. And the third point I want to make quickly is this industry has been studied literally going back to the 70s because there's been frequently allegations made of collusion and conspiracy, which is very illegal, okay? And it has been investigated up, down, left, and right. And every investigation over 40 years done by the government of Canada, by uh, the Industry Canada, which is the uh, the Competition Bureau, has found absolutely none. And I don't believe there is any collusion. I don't believe that any uh, person working in any oil company is going to risk going to jail and destroying their career uh, for that. The uh, there is a lot of things that uh, affect the price of oil. Let's start with the most obvious. Forty, almost forty percent, thirty-eight, I think it is percent of the price of oil has absolutely nothing to do with oil and gas industry. It's called the government. In other words, federal and provincial taxation.
1: Now there's your collusion. Now there's your collusion. You want okay?
0: They tax us uh, heavily. And it's a very, very important revenue source for the government of Canada and the government of Ontario and the other provincial governments. So almost four-tenths. So just, it's really simple. Just take the price at retail and multiply it by 4.4, four, and you'll see that uh, almost, we're approaching half, is the price of, of uh, the taxes going to the government and uh, and then the, the price of the oil itself the raw material that b- gets distilled is i believe it's another uh, 35% i'm just quoting this from memory so that the retail uh, is uh, the whole retailing component uh, refining and retailing downstream is the smallest part of the price of gas And I said that was my last point, but I want to throw one more point on Uh, because many people say it's not competitive. It's actually extremely competitive. It's so competitive that you can have the price changing by the day or at night or on a Friday night because it's a supply-demand thing. And when people suggest, they don't realize they're contradicting themselves when they say there's collusion. Prices would not be volatile and jump up and down if there was collusion. If there was collusion, there would be a flat price. It would not change. But the very fact that the prices are bouncing around like crazy shows you how competitive this market
1: is. There's another element to this, too, since you brought the government into it at this point of the conversation, because invariably some elected officials will bring their hands and say, oh, this is terrible what they're doing to you, consumers. We're going to see if we can do something about this. They make more money when the price goes up, because the tax that they draw from this is a percentage of the price of the gasoline at the pump.
0: You are absolutely correct. And, of course, let's not forget the carbon tax. Uh, the carbon tax is also, I mean, not only do they make the gasoline taxes and the, the various uh, taxes hidden at the wholesale level, but now we're going to have these uh, uh, essentially carbon taxes. I know it's called cap and trade, but it's, it's essentially a tax on carbon, mm-hmm. and it's based on the price. So, the, the higher the price of the energy, of the, uh, the uh, fossil fuel, uh, the more you are going to pay to the government. And so, the, uh, I think that the biggest culprit right now, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting to you it's the only culprit, but the biggest culprit in the cost of energy taking uh, gasoline, taking this big jump in the last two weeks, was precisely the, the cap and trade uh, kicking in. Uh, and it took – there was a slight delay, and then it kicked in. I'm not saying that's the only one. There's other factors. Demand goes up in the summer. We know that empirically from StatsCan data. People drive a lot more in the summer, so there's a lot more demand. Um, believe it or not, the gasoline they refine and sell to us at the, at the pumps uh, is a higher – it's a different quality. Um, and I'm not a, <laughs> an oil engineer, but they actually it, – it, they have to uh, change the uh, refineries and every spring and they, uh, they shut down for a short time, and they have to reconfigure the refineries to produce summer gasoline. Let's just call it summer gasoline versus winter gasoline, and it costs a little bit more to produce summer gasoline. So the, the cost of it is a little bit more expensive. There's a lot more demand because we're out in the summertime. It's nice, we're driving, we're taking road trips. So demand goes up, So supply and demand kicks in. Uh, and then there's the variability of international oil prices. Sometimes goes down, sometimes goes up. And then, of course, there's all of these taxes, And by the way, it's both the federal and the provincial governments. They're really raking off a huge amount of money off of uh, our gasoline.
1: Yeah, those little stickers. How many times, though, Ian, have we seen, for instance, a federal finance minister or provincial finance minister, and they'll talk about, you know, in our, their budget, here's the deficit that we're projecting, and they come back with their update about six months later and said, no, we're managing the government much better. The deficit's nowhere near what we thought it was going to be. More often than not, it's because of these these tax bonuses they get when the price of gas goes up.
0: I, I think that that helps. I mean, when the economy is growing, — um, and, and we've seen this every time there's a recession, so we can compare the opposite situation when, — when the economy is growing, it generates lots of money for governments. Uh, and I'm talking federal and provincial governments. Let's leave out municipal where their tax base is, is much more uh, flatline — well, when I say flatline, it's fixed from the, the price of property taxes. But at provincial, federal and provincial level, the revenues of these governments are very sensitive to how fast the economy is growing. When the economy goes in the tank, their revenues just drop like a stone. But when the economy is booming, it, their revenues just go through the roof. And it's not just income taxes. And it's corporate income tax or provincial uh, personal income taxes. It's these taxes, uh, development taxes for new houses, gasoline taxes, and so forth goes through the roof. And so the government really does. It's no wonder that they support growth. Yes, voters want jobs and so forth. But governments uh, have a lot more money to spend when the economy is doing well,
1: let me ask you a, a, about source and, and, and the impact that has on price because back in the you you talked about the discussions were going on since the early seventies and I, I can remember you know when gasoline stations were shut down in the states back in the seventies because there was yep. no supply. I get stuck on that a couple of different times or those long lineups but at the, at back in those days know as you know, we all blame the oil cartels it's yep. those 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 guys over in the Middle East you know they control this so they've got us by the throat. Uh, and we'd, we'd compare what was happening in North America with the fact that in places like the United Arab Emirates, they are apparently like pennies on the dollar for their gasoline because it was right there. They're just pulling it out of the ground and throwing it into the pump. Well, yep. we've changed now. I mean, we're producing more fuel here in North America now. We're refining right. more here right now. That's so right. There is a great expectation among a lot of people here to say, well, our, our gasoline should be dirt cheap then.
0: Um, again, uh, I can see their argument, but but remember two points. First off, OPEC is less than 50% of the world's supply now. So it's a cartel, yes, but it's, it's, a, it's a not very effective cartel. I didn't say it had no effect. I just said it cannot control the price as they could in the early 1970s when they accounted for the vast majority of oil production in the world. When you're down to below 50%, you don't have the same leverage over the market price. The second point I want to make... Is, is that oil, the raw oil, the oil in the barrel, is an international price. There is not a separate Canadian price. I'm, I, I want to, before someone accuses me of not being aware of the discount for Canadian crude, let's leave out the transportation issues of pipelines. The international, so-called West Texas Intermediate or, uh, or Brent uh, oil are international prices. There isn't a, quote, Canadian price. We get less for our oil than Brent, than West Texas Intermediate, only because it's landlocked and we can't get it out to mark, to tidewater. But that's a that's not a price of oil problem, that's a transportation logistics problem. And so my point is when people say well we should have a lower price in Canada than the rest of the world, well, if, if if you accept the argument, it's not an argument, it's a fact, the price of oil is international, then you, you cannot expect that the price of oil is going to be cheaper in Canada when it is an international price. And remember, it really comes down to taxation. Um, uh, different governments in different countries tax at different levels. I mean, even in the states, I go to the states a lot, Up uh, the northern states, New York state, for example, Charges a lot more taxes on their gasoline uh, than, than do the southern states. Uh, last spring, when I went to Hilton Head, I was gassing up at two seventy five a gallon in New York State, and I got down to Hilton Head, uh, South Carolina, and I was gassing up at two twenty. Well, two twenty a gallon that's U.S. But the difference was purely taxes. And then you go to Europe, and they're paying right now. Well, the last when I was there last August, they were paying when I converted it in Canadian dollars. Germany, Poland, and so forth—they're paying about two dollars a liter as opposed to us paying around $1.20 right now. And back then, last year, we were paying probably 90 cents a liter last August. So my point is, the price varies from country to country, partly because of supply and demand, but I think the single most important influence on the retail price of gasoline are, is the tax the level of taxes imposed by the national government and the state or provincial government.
1: Well, and let's talk about those, especially the impact that these provincial taxes are starting to have. The Ontario uh, tax just went into effect, as you say. We're probably seeing yeah. the, the impact on that. Uh, Quebec, similar situation. Uh, BC's had one in place for quite some time. Yes. But the difference between that and Ontario's is that BC also offers a number of, of tax rebate programs to try to make it what they call revenue neutral. I hate to use yeah. that phrase because people just ah, revenue neutral. We heard that in the in the 1990s here in Ontario, but uh, we're not getting that benefit from the government here in Ontario.
0: That's right. Uh, in fact, that was one of the reasons, and I don't want to get into the weeds here, but uh, 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 because it's important what we're talking about. When one criticizes carbon taxes, and I'm one of them that does, you get people like the Catherine McKenna, the Environment Minister of Canada, saying, oh, you don't believe in global warming. Uh, in other words, they, I think that's a cheap shot, uh, accusing you of something you never said, instead of dealing with the very question of the efficiency of carbon taxes. And the academic and economic argument for carbon taxes has always been that they should be revenue neutral to change behavior. In other words, you charge, the. per I'm going to say this in plain English, the logic or the theory of carbon taxes is you charge people more for anything that uses carbon uh, fossil fuels, but then you rebate it back through lower personal income taxes or lower GST sales taxes so that the government is not using it just as a revenue grab and slowing down the economy by taking money out of the economy. In other words, they take it out with one hand, but they give it back with another. What Kathleen Wynne has done in Ontario, unlike B.C., B.C. did rebate back the carbon taxes according to the theory of carbon taxes. And so they taxed them more for their fossil fuels, for their gasoline, and then they gave them lower tax rates. What Wynne has done and the Ontario government has done is they're taxing more and they're just using that money to spend more. (laughs) So, in other words, it's a... It's a backdoor way to increase government spending. And so my criticism of carbon taxes, that's my first criticism, is that governments are, this government is being dishonest with us in and not, you know, rebating it back to keep it revenue neutral. And secondly, and very quickly, my argument is is that carbon taxes are not going to produce what they claim it will, which is to get us to switch from driving our cars. And I've argued that it's all very fine to quote Europe, where there's 500 million people in a very small area, relatively speaking. The densities, that's the number of people per square kilometer, is just unbelievable compared to here. We are four people per square kilometer. Europe runs from 250 to over 500 hundred people per square kilometer so everybody takes or many more people take uh, LRT mass transit because the economics works because they have the densities in Canada we're the second coldest country in the world we have the smallest density in the world and we're going to continue driving our cars uh, no matter what the price is we're just gonna grit our teeth and that's what I always said and we'll just pay it and then we'll have less money to spend on restaurants or, or going to football games or whatever the idea, and I've had this debate with environmentalists, and they say, "No, no, no, we're going to, you know, we're going to stop driving our cars," and that's just nonsense. Or they argue, "We're going to drive it far less," and that just isn't supported empirically. Uh, by the data, when prices of gasoline went to the roof, which is a de facto carbon tax, uh, we just paid more for gasoline. That's all. And we kept on driving our cars and trucks.
1: Well, we're having that debate right here in Hamilton, as you guys have in Ottawa for the last number of years, about LRT. And, and you know, if anybody even says a negative word, and I support the uh, the, the concept of LRT, but if you say anything negative or start questioning it, they start saying, "Well, you know, you're a luddite. You don't believe this. You don't. You don't care about the environment. You don't support public transit." I support all of those things. I support the environment, it's public transit. But don't take money out of my pocket and then say, "Okay, you're poorer now, so you're not going to use your car as much." I still have to use my car when I go to work at four in the morning because transit service doesn't exist. Exactly. But if I have less money in my pocket, Ian, I'm not going out to dinner. I'm not going to buy that new TV. Exactly. I'm not. So what's the impact this is going to have on the economy? I think that's the big question everybody has now. Forget about well, short-term? Okay, I'm yeah. I'm I'm peed off that I have to pay more at the pump, but that's going to mean I'm going to spend less. And ultimately, that's going to filter down into the economic picture, isn't it?
0: It will, and that's the whole argument in the economic theory and the research, the literature for a carbon tax. The argument for rebating it back through lower sales taxes or lower um, uh, income taxes is so that you don't have a negative impact on the economy. So if by keeping it revenue neutral so that people uh, in aggregate still have the same amount of money in their pocket net... It's not going to impact the economy. But if you take money, more money out of their pockets so that they have less to spend, well, then they're going to buy less stuff. I mean, the logic here, some people say economics doesn't make any sense. I've had people say that to me. Actually, economics is the most logical thing in the world. I mean, the logic of economics is if you have less money in your pocket because governments have raised taxes for whatever reason, it doesn't matter if they're saving polar bears or saving the world if you if they take in aggregate more money out of your pocket across the province of Ontario we in aggregate are going to have less money to spend on other stuff whether it's clothing or restaurants or holidays or home renovations or going to movies whatever and and that's the argument for being for revenue neutral by rebating the money back to the consumer through increased carbon taxes. But Wynne has decided instead, and her justification rationale is, well, we're going to spend all that money on environmental initiatives to green the economy and so forth. And and what it's going to do is slow down the economy, because as I've just said repeatedly, we will have less money in our pocket at the end of the day to spend on other things. So that's going to slow down the, the growth.
1: One of our listeners, you talked about collusion a minute ago, one of our listeners just emailed in here and said, could you uh, please ask, uh, Ian, uh, if there's no collusion, why does the price of gasoline jump every time there's a long weekend?
0: Supply and demand. Supply and demand. I mean, to those people who really think that there's collusion, I mean, just think about it. Most people, I worked in a large organization called a bank. I did not own the bank. Most people that work at Petrocan do not own Petrocan. They're just employees. They make a salary like you and I and everybody else. And the idea that you're going to risk going to jail for that. And the second point I want to make about the collusion argument is the number of people involved to collude on prices when there are thousands of gasoline stations. There are 17 refineries with thousands of employees. I mean, my joke, and I'm being a little bit sarcastic here, is if there really is a conspiracy, what football stadium in Kent is big enough to hold all of the people to have a meeting to organize the conspiracy to set prices? People don't realize to set something so complex requires enormous numbers of people to be involved. There isn't just one person sitting, you know, behind the curtain like in uh, the movie. Um, uh, you know Kansas it's we're not w- Wizard Kansas. of Oz, yeah the Wizard of Oz, there is no magic man, little man behind the curtain pulling levers <laughs> there 's just way too many people involved in the decision from the upstream oil and gas producers to the pipeline producer uh, shippers who ship the oil to the refineries to the retailers and then the government's investigating them and taking taxes from them there 's just no way you can organize such a uh, conspiracy in fact, as I said, if there was a conspiracy the prices would not move at all. You would just set them at a very high level. You wouldn't let them go down. I mean, that argument defeats itself. Why are they going up? Well, the question is, the flip question is, well, then why do these conspiracy people allow the price to go down if there really was a conspiracy? The answer is there is no conspiracy. It's supply and demand at work. It's a very complex industry with enormous numbers of actors involved: companies, employees, individuals, and and suppliers, and and so forth. And and the it's it's partly supply and demand. It's partly uh, the season, the time, the seasonality. There is a seasonality in this industry. That is to say, there's lower demand in the winter than in the summer for gasoline, and uh, it's partly taxation. As I said, forty percent, almost forty percent, is the price of taxes. So there's a bunch of different different variables going on here that affect the price but i would say if i had to give a sort of a short snappy answer the when the prices do jump like that it's supply, it's driven by supply and demand now people may not like that that they're putting up the price because there's more demand but that's what supply and demand is it rations supply and demand rat the price system rations demand by if we put the price up less people buy it I mean, it's the whole, It's the same logic of a carbon tax. By the way, mm-hmm. you put the price up, you consume less. You bring the price down, you consume more. When big screen TVs were three thousand dollars a TV, hardly anyone bought one. Comes down to a thousand, everybody goes out and buys a big screen TV. And we we've known this from massive amounts of data from Statscan, of industry, company after company, industry after industry, and product line after product line. Most people are sensitive to price, and and I argue that and that generally holds true in most products. Whereas in something that's essential, and I mean, I've always argued that uh, electricity is, is essential, you don't consume it for fun, you consume it because you have to. And likewise, uh, transportation and heating of your house. You don't heat your house in January for fun, you do it because you have no choice. And you drive to work because you have a job, but you've got to get to work. Yep, and we-, we don't have mass transit and LRT like they do in Europe. So that's why. We, and so these are really essential uh, products. These aren't discretionary luxury goods like uh, you know expensive clothes or going to a restaurant, and and so we're going to pay it uh, regardless, uh, uh, you know, of of that price. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM 900
1: CHML. And at a uh, mayor's town hall right now, though, a uh, Burlington mayor, Rick Goldring, is here, and uh, we'll open the lines up in just a couple of minutes for your questions, your comments uh, for politics in the city of Burlington. An awful lot going on, of course, in uh, that city, and uh, we'll uh, give you an opportunity to ask questions and make comments to uh, Burlington Mayor Rick Goldwing. You know the numbers, 905-645-3221, star 9900 is a toll-free number. Uh, email Kelly at 900chml.com, and on Twitter, that's Kelly. Your tweets, your emails, and your phone calls for uh, Burlington Mayor Rick Goldwing in just a few minutes. How are you today? I'm doing great, Bill. Uh, Let's talk about housing. It was the focus of uh, uh, these uh, little get-togethers, I guess, that Premier Wynne is having uh, with uh, mayors of uh, the area over the last little while, and uh, said the focus of this, there's supposed to be a new policy announcement uh, from the government, the provincial government, we're told, in the next little while. Uh, this, is a, this is an issue that impacts every community in this province right now.
3: It, it does impact every, every community. And I was looking at uh, the prices in Burlington for March from the, both the, the Toronto Real Estate Board as well as the Hamilton-Burlington Real Estate Board because it is interesting how many homes now are being sold in Burlington by Toronto agents, our Toronto member agents of, of, of that particular real estate board, board. And it's almost 50-50 between the Hamilton, wow. Hamilton-Burlington Real Estate Board and the Toronto Real Estate Board. And it's interesting. The prices coming from the Toronto agents that are being reported are higher than the uh, the prices coming from the Hamilton-Burlington agents, and that may be a sign of people that are coming in from the east are willing to pay a premium. But it's a, it's a big issue affordability of housing all across the Greater Toronto-Hamilton area. Uh, when the average in Burlington is a million, the average in Oakville is a million and a half, the average in, in Markham Markham's a million four. Uh, Mississauga is a million plus. Um, it's a huge issue, and it's not just the, it's not just the Greater Toronto, Hamilton area. It's uh, it's expanding, and it's in Guelph, it's, it's London. I mean, people. I know the situation in London firsthand, where uh, a house was on sale for four hundred forty thousand dollars, and the people, the couple had been burnt before, not. Being and being outbid, they didn't want to be outbid, so they want to be fairly aggressive on what they bid. So the house was listed for 440, they bid 484, and it went for 570. That's incredible. So, so it is crazy. So, yesterday I was part of a meeting with the greater Toronto uh, area mayors and chairs, uh, with the premier of Ontario, uh, as well as the minister of housing and the minister of municipal affairs, and we had an open discussion, open forum discussion about what can be done
1: to address the situation. And So what's the, what sort of stuff comes up? Because there was speculation, Mr. Mayor, in the federal budget a few weeks ago uh, that Minister Morneau was going to uh, deal with the capital gains tax as a way to try to slow things down. He didn't, uh, but on the course the next day he said, well, it d- doesn't mean we're not going to do it. I just didn't put it in the budget. Uh, there, there's a pro and con to that. You talk to economists and they say, boy, every time government starts to meddle in free markets like this, uh, you got to be careful of, of the long term impacts on this so so talk to us a little bit about some of the things that were mentioned around the table well certainly some, one of the the common themes was
3: caution. I mean, be very careful what you implement um, you know trying to address an issue, you have to be aware of the unforeseen consequences uh, of your decisions and, and, and you know if it was all that simple to address, it would have been addressed by now uh, as far as dealing with the escalating uh, prices, but certainly, there was discussion about uh, something similar to what they've done in in Vancouver area with regard to a, a non resident tax, uh, because that has appear appears to affected the the increase in the in the Vancouver prices. There's other, but uh, is that really a
1: factor in Ontario? Well,
3: I mean you got to get the data, right? Yeah. You have got to quantify it, and it's one of the things that we talked about at a meeting of Halton Regional Council a few weeks ago was the number of unoccupied homes. And it's interesting. In Burlington, there are about 1,200 unoccupied homes that were stated in the 2016 census data. In Oakville, which is basically the same size of Burlington, uh, there are 2,400 unoccupied homes. But we, gotta, we can't jump to the conclusions just because Oakville has twice as many unoccupied homes as Burlington. and We're the same size communities because Oakville has a lot of student housing for Sheridan College. Sure. So when the census is done, it's after school is out. And it, it may be natural that there's going to be some vacancies and some student housing for a period of time. So one of the challenges with... Uh, with taking action is really understanding the data. So it's one thing we have so much information with regard to average prices and median prices and so on and so forth, uh, but we don't know who the purchasers are. Uh, you know that hasn't been defined as much as much as that that can be accessed. So there was a there was a lot of encouragement to the premier that you know we appreciate the willingness to take some action, but also. Have to be care- very careful about the messages that are being sent, and there was comments being made about the a bubble uh, in the late uh, '80s, which I remember very mm-hmm. well because I bought into that particular bubble, um, and you know the market looked after itself at, at some point. So I so there was some views from the mayors and chairs that at some point this is going to come unglued. You know, the, 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 there's going to be an adjustment at some point. Will it be you know a, a uh, a quick reduction in, in housing uh, costs, or will it be uh, simply a, a de- decline in the rate of increase? I mean, who knows? But at some point, the market forces will will affect
1: housing prices. There was evidence in, in the West Coast situation in British Columbia about foreign investment because that's something that has been going on for quite some time. And they knew that there was a lot of offshore investment yeah. uh, buying properties there yeah. uh, and simply leaving them vacant and waiting for them to, to uh, you know, accrue value. Uh, but I don't see that it's happened here in Ontario, and the concern that well, I maybe
3: not to the same degree. Well, maybe you know, not. It probably happens in, in, in Toronto. It happens in, in maybe Markham and Vaughan, possibly. Um, but I don't. I don't believe it happens to that extent. I don't. I, I don't have
1: any evidence, anecdotally or otherwise, of it happening in Burlington. The other element to that, though, is where do you draw the line between somebody who is, uh, as you say, an investor. Mind you, some people use words a little stronger than that. Uh, speculator that come in and, and buy huge pieces of real estate for something like that for speculative purposes, as opposed to somebody who's a new Canadian right. from another area. Because I mean, the way the legislation was drafted, they are subject to that same tax. And they're not there to speculate. They're there to say, hey, I want to make Canada my home. Right. I want to invest in this country right now. And you're right. going to tax me for it? Right. And that, that comment was made you know, by
3: one of the mayors that uh, you know, the premier goes along uh, to... Um, tours internationally for foreign trade. And here you're saying, come on, bring in foreign investment. We want foreign investment to create some jobs in Ontario. And then, there's one of, then on the other hand, you may impose some sort of tax on non-residents owning property or sending a mixed message there. And so you gotta be very careful. Everything's gotta be very well thought out. If you come up with a good idea to try to adjust the issue, you really gotta think it through very, very carefully to make sure that uh, any unexpected uh, consequences are considered thoroughly. And almost when you go through the exercise, I mean, you cannot think of every potential eventuality. So, uh, whatever action of the province of Ontario may take, uh, they have to be very careful
1: and consider all potential uh, issues that they could impact. So how do you deal with the short-term problems and and some of the things that you see happening because of what's happening in the real estate market these days, the concern about gentrification? And, and obviously with that, the, the companion piece to that is affordability.
3: No, a- a- absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that was talked about yesterday was how can we expedite the development approval process is there is there potential for us to improve that process because i do know in burlington that you know we have lots of examples of decisions that have been made Uh, our our, uh, i should say a a pre-consultation meeting with a developer takes place and by the time we we, council gives a final approval and then they go to site plan approval it, it could be two two and a half three years before there's actually a shovel in the ground after the beginning of the process. So we talked about if there's any way that, that those processes can be uh, improved. And uh, again, you know, you can try to address that. But you know, one of the things that we're most proud of in Burlington is the, is the level of community engagement we have. So when a new development comes along and it does not comply to the official plan or the zoning bylaw, and we want to consider a, 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 an amendment for zoning, an amendment for uh, the official plan, then we have a process that we must go through. And, and it starts off with pre-consultation, and then all the reports come in, and then we have a neighborhood meeting. Uh, and then there's a, a, a information meeting in a standing committee before we make a decision. And then after that process, you know, it's another three, four months uh, when we get the actual recommendation back from staff. And then, you know, once there's an approval, of course, then you have to go to site plan. And it has to be vetted by Conservation Halton a lot of the time in the region of Halton, uh, potentially ministry, ministry of Transportation for Ontario, uh, you know, depending... Uh, where the site is so there's a long process now does it is, is that an issue is that really an issue contributing to uh, the cost of real estate um, the fact that development projects can take longer
1: could be but I don't believe it's anywhere near the only factor you just described a very long long process to try to get something from hey I think I might want to do something to actually getting close to having a shovel on the ground Uh, One other thing that can happen in that process uh, that you didn't include is, uh, let's face it, not everybody's going to be happy with this. Uh, there's the appeal process to say, I I don't like, we're heading down to the OMB now. Exactly. And that delays the process even further. Now, I know the government has already talked about some reforms with the OMB. Are are you satisfied with the pace with with which they're moving?
3: With the reforms for the
1: OMB, yes, I am. I'm on the
3: inside loop there with that. And I've had, you know, leading discussion on behalf of the Association of Municipalities of Ontario with the Attorney General and the Ministry of, uh, of Municipal Affairs. And, uh... I believe what has been uh, discussed so far, uh, when it is introduced into a proposed legislation in the springtime, and it could be very late spring, but nonetheless it'll be the spring, uh, I believe that will go a long way. It won't go all the way, but it'll go a long way to addressing the concerns of many residents and, uh, and
1: municipalities. Because right now nobody's happy with it. You know, developers get upset about it and say it's a delay process, and and neighborhood groups and in some cases city halls and and, and councils are upset about the process as well. And it just seems as if when nobody's happy, then clearly I'm not suggesting you have to blow it up, but, I mean, some reform obviously is needed here to to try to, first of all, expedite the process. And, again, even after that process, not everybody's going to be happy, but at least you'll know that, okay, we had a proper vetting of this. Exactly. I mean, one of the issues that
3: municipalities have is the fact that you know, by going to the Ontario Municipal Board, um, developers can ignore what the desires are in the official plans and the zoning bylaws of uh, municipalities. So that's, that is the biggest concern, and I believe the new legislation that will be proposed in June uh, will in fact uh, encourage and, and provide guidelines to uh, encourage more deference to municipal decisions. To that point, uh, the new official plan is now available online. Our new official plan, was, which is a quite weighty and extensive document, is available online. Uh, we're calling it Grow Bold, Grow Up, Grow Smart, and Grow Beautiful. I, I build Beautiful, Build Up, Build Smart. And uh, it's taken a long time for us to get to the place we're at, but it is in draft form um, as much as uh, I like it and I think it's been well thought out. There's still some pieces missing that we need to fill in, but we've come a long way. And you know, the last official plan that we, uh, we created was back in 1994. There's certainly been tweaks and changes since that time. But the last you know, major official plan work was back in 1994. So 1994, Burlington was very much a, a suburban-type community with lots of opportunity for greenfield development. And recognizing we have virtually zero room left for greenfield development, this is a particular f- official plan that addresses the issues around intensification um, and you know, improving our transportation and transit and so on and so forth and how we become more urban and addresses where we want to be more urban and where we want to protect traditional neighborhoods and what we want to do with our employment lands and enhancing um, our agricultural and natural areas. Uh, it's a very weighty, substantive document, uh, very all-encompassing, very extensive. Uh, and One of the things I'm particularly pleased about, there's a whole chapter on engagement. You know, with the community and how we're going to engage with the community about the official plan. Now, uh, that, going that's, this
1: is like the game plan for a football team. That, this is what the official plan is. This yeah. is what we want to do. How much flexibility is there within that plan for, for variations that may come up? Well, there's been there, one of the challenges that uh, council
3: has said to staff that we, we have difficulty with is that when we get amendments to the official plan come forward by the development industry and, and amendments for zoning, what lens do we look through? when we're considering alternatives to what's in the official plan. Because we have to recognize that as much as, um, you know, you can do all the, all the planning work uh, possible to come up with a really well thought out official plan, but you cannot think of everything. You cannot think of every possibility of, of development on different pieces of land. Uh, so staff have created a lens for us to look through when we will consider uh, official plan amendments because you don't want to change your official plan willy-nilly. You want to have some thought behind it. Um, you want to have some substance or some basis for considering uh, changes to the official plan. And in the official plan, there is some language around that.
1: If somebody, for instance, were to appeal, let's, let's use the, the Ontario Municipal Board as, a, as an, an example here, uh, and, and they want to do something that's contrary to, this, to, to the official plan, the board rules in their favor. Do you change the official plan, or do you look at that as just a one-off?
3: Well, you can you can change the official plan, but also you could appeal the ruling of the municipal board. That's obviously an option. It depends how frequent it's happening. I think you have to weigh it. You can't just look at one situation. It depends how frequent it's happening. I am hopeful that the proposed changes in legislation will become law. One of the 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 changes that have been proposed publicly is that um, there can be no outside um, amendment or development applications to amend an official plan within the first two years of council approving an official plan. So that does buy you some time uh, to where you have some certainty
1: for at least the first couple of years. I mean, uh, practical application of that. I mean, you have a couple of things right now that are being proposed for the city that council seems to have some problems with. Right. Uh, they may well end up in front of the Ontario Municipal Board, which could have an impact on... I, I would think, to some of the, uh, the amendments to the official plan that you've talked about here, if, in fact, they're successful. If yeah, not, then who knows?
3: Yeah, 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 potentially, and we've got one that we're waiting for in July. We thought it was going to be settled in February March, but that's the proposal at uh, 26 stories at Martha and Lakeshore. That's the one, yeah. Um, so we're hoping we're going to get a decision on that in July, but there's, there's other development applications as well, particularly one on, on Brant Street that we're dealing with at the present time that uh, uh, we have some concerns about as well.
0: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
3: on AM 900 CHML.